Welcome to the First Intuition Podcast. My name is David Malthouse and today we are investigating the, the finances of the flying industry. So this is one of our special edition podcasts that we do about every three months or so, looking at an individual industry and how that industry works and the finances surrounding it. So previously, we've looked at the football industry, we've looked at the fashion industry, we've looked into food in, the food industry, education and construction. And I think probably right on cue, we're recording this in June 2023, 2023 even, um, just before people are, are looking at going on summer holidays. So I think flying's on a lot of people's minds. I'm joined by two guests today who I'm really hoping that we can get into the industries or the businesses that they work into and find out a lot more about the finance of those industries. So I'm going to hand over to them just to give me uh, to give you a little introduction as to who they are and the, the business that they work in. So my first guest is Phil. So um, hello, Phil. Could you tell me a little bit about, about you right. and about where it is you work? Yes, of course. So, yeah, I'm Phil. I'm the uh, CFO. Um, for the aviation division of a company called Eskin Limited. So that's a company that uh, owns a renewables uh, section uh, and a bunch of businesses and then also owns uh, some airports and some ancillary businesses that are linked to that. So I'm principally based um, at London South End Airport. That's the that's the main operating um, entity in, in, in the division I look after. But it also includes a hotel, it includes private debts, handling, uh, and some other some other smaller entities. So, yeah, I've been in aviation now for several years. Used to work um, for Manchester Airport Group at Stansted, headed up finances there. And then previous to that, I've worked in shipping. So sort of boxes and ships replaced for planes and um, people. So um, a varied career in, in some respects. I'm based at South End Airport, which is an airport yep. that is probably my favourite airport that I've travelled from. Yeah. On the basis that I, I many years ago, I flew to Venice from there, and I, it's the only time that I've had my my luggage, um, my hand luggage, thoroughly searched by anyone at security. Where they opened it up, went through everything, right. like, did the little scanny things, and yep. still, it only took about ten minutes to go from arrival at the airport to getting to airside and waiting for the plane. It was yeah. just phenomenal in terms of how quickly you could get through. Yeah, I mean, I could I could probably spend the next hour and a half just giving you uh, the, the real detail as to why it is a, such a good airport, etc. But I won't say, I won't go too into the sales pitch. But yes, the general, the majority of people love it as an airport. And as we'll get into today, yeah, as to where we sit and why it works so well, um, you know, it's it's... Um, it keeps me busy, most definitely. Yes. Yeah. And I think, uh, I know, so we'll talk about it a little bit later on, but um, there's so much more to an airport than I think people see mm. when yeah. they, they, they walk through it. A lot of people think it's a bit like a bus terminal. You turn mm. up, you catch your bus, or so catch your plane and move on. But there's so yeah. much more that's going on there, I know. Um, and my other guest is Stefan. So, um, hi, Stefan. Welcome to the podcast. Um, hi. And I've known you quite some time, Steph, and I was actually, um, I looked at your, your LinkedIn kind of employment history a little while ago to pick up when you started um, training to be an accountant, because I, I know that I taught you when you were very, very kind of taking those initial steps into training mm-hmm. to be an accountant. Yep. And it was also the time that I'd just started to be a teacher as well. So I'd only been teaching a year or two, I think, when I first started teaching you. And it's quite scary when you look at the length of time ago that was for me. But um 
I'm still doing the same thing. You've been doing a huge amount of different things since then. So um, where are you still going? Hi, thanks. Uh, thanks for inviting me along. Um, so my name is Stefan Payne. I'm the CFO of Titan Airways. Um, and we are in a privately owned airline based at Stansted. I'm assuming Phil knows us. Uh, yep. uh, you yeah. previously here. Um, so, yeah, it's, it has been a, a few years since I was sat in your classroom, David, that is for sure. Um, so I suppose, yeah, since since study, I, I studied in practice and I moved out of practice into Titan actually um, 13 years ago and have progressed uh, through the ranks to my current role, a CFO, which I've been in for seven years now, I believe. Um, we say a privately owned airline operating currently 13 aircraft, um, a mix of passenger and freight aircraft. Most people probably won't have heard the name Titan um, unless you're an av geek uh, or or happen to have flown for say someone like jet two and who were using our services um we provide passenger and freight services both to mostly to businesses uh hence uh, most people might not have come across this uh, either that or you're incredibly wealthy that would be the other opportunity to maybe to have to have used this um but we fly for other airlines and we fly for charters typically for businesses that want a private exclusive charter to essentially wherever they want to go um so the head up the cfo is a varied role in what I do which I'm sure we'll cut touch on later but it's as most CFOs and it in a medium-sized business you know reasonable size but still not the massive infrastructure here you then uh, learn to wear many hats so since the days in the classroom to be fair I like the case study bit because that's where you got like you say to be nosy and into the business bit and that's the bit that I enjoy most where I am now it's you're actually in the business you're okay head of finance but ultimately very much involved in what the business is doing. Yeah, I think that's something that we we tend to see is when the students that really enjoyed that kind of business strategy side of things, the case study side of things, they tend to be the students that move into those kind of industry style roles. Um, the people that, well, I, I think by the nature of if you really enjoyed the audit exams and they were the things that really got you going, it's probably best that you did stay in audit there rather than uh, move into industry and look at those roles. Um Stephen, I just want to kind of go through. So as, a, as an airline, you're, um, you talked about different kind of things that you do. So uh, I think kind of yeah. uh, it talks about packages and freight and things like that. I think that's, yeah. I would hope, fairly self-explanatory. But the one you talked about is where you fly for other airlines. And yeah. I, I've seen this myself because I, I was on a, a, as you mentioned, the Jet 2 flights a number of years ago. And um, so I, I actually overheard some of the staff who were, talking kind of as, as I think we were preparing to land um, and one of them mentioned the fact that oh I still work for Titan or I work for Titan or something like that mm-hmm. because I knew you and I knew that you worked there I instantly said oh right this is a Titan plane then yeah. and h- how does that work then so you're you're running a flight for another airline yeah correct so I suppose for last year about a third of our business was this part it's called ACMI which stands for aircraft crew maintenance and insurance so essentially as part of the service that's the element that we provide so it's our aircraft it's our crew it's our responsibility to maintain it and we insure it but everything else around the service is then provided by our customer airline so in the case of jet 2 so it's a jet 2 flight number so as a customer it is the jet to experience a jet to check-in desk everything else feels jet to apart from the metal and 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 the people uh, essentially flying flying the aircraft so they're responsible for the fuel for the handlers for all of the services that are, the, that are then related to the flight um and that work can come strategically 
as it is we have a contract currently with jet to um to give them summer capacity clearly obviously everyone goes on holiday more in the summer than the winter so they need an uplifting capacity and they have a choice to get more planes and people with the fixed cost associated or use us for a period of time which we have two aircraft in that uh for this year for essentially six months slightly more um or it can be short notice where an aircraft has gone it's gone tech aog aircraft on ground a lot of terminology in aviation <laughs> forgive me um <laughs> Um, so it could be that an aircraft is essentially broken down and, and they need a, they need, they don't have a backup themselves. So how do they get recovery? And it could be for a day, it could be for a week. Um, so you then get the short notice, uh, work that, that then can be for, you know, in our customer bases, most European airlines. And typically we have a mix then of the strategic, slightly longer term contracts. And then we hold capacity back deliberately to, to provide that rescue service, if you like. Um, and that has the, the short notice stuff has been a bigger or an incre increased part of our business in more recent years, thanks to a lovely piece of EU legislation, EU 261, which is passenger compensation rights. Um, I get the concept, but as an airline, it's wholly unfair on the airline, but I get what they try to do. But essentially, there's lots of compensation paid to passengers, regardless of kind of what you might have paid as a ticket um, if you're delayed by three hours for uh, for what is deemed to be the air airline's fault, which yeah, the, the, the term the airlines fault is, is really not how it's applied. So airlines are then incentivized and that helps us as a business because ultimately they've got to pay several hundred euros per passenger as compensation and still get them somewhere or sub us. Um, and that's that then um, like, uh, essentially creates a market for us. Um, so, so yeah, and that's, I suppose that's a bit of what you talk about airports not being necessarily what everyone thinks that then within the airline industry, you also have the same, the same piece that goes on and the same concept applies to freight aircraft as well in that you can fly so we fly for uh ups dhl for example under the same sort of concept it's their service they're responsible for the packages and everything to do with getting the parcels we just literally turn up with our plane they load it and we take them to the, the airport that they want us to take it to and that's the, that is the extent of our service essentially so uh, thanks for that Seth. that's that's amazing I, I love hearing those kind of things because a lot of people don't recognize those things happen behind the scenes. I mean, I think most people would think that if I'm going to book a flight with EasyJet, EasyJet must own that plane and that must be their plane. And if they put on a new, a new route somewhere, then maybe they've bought another plane or they've shifted a plane from another route. But uh, I guess for them, is it the case that they maybe don't want to commit to extra capex and don't want to buy another plane because they don't know the route's going to work maybe and they yeah. use them to do that? Or yeah, is so it something else? Yeah, so sometimes it's route proving. They don't want to make that commitment. Um, sometimes it is just availability of aircraft um, or labour. So we a few years ago, we had a contract for an airline that I won't name that um, they had all the pieces in place apart from the C of the ACMI. So they had the aeroplanes, they had everything set up. They just didn't have the crew. So it was an expensive time to use us. But ultimately, the only way then to provide the service for the customers that had booked the tickets was to find – because. I suppose within aviation, it is heavily regulated, as you'd like to hope. Um, so part of the challenge is you can't just go and get crew off the street tomorrow to fly your aeroplane. They couldn't use our crew to fly their aeroplane for various different reasons. So despite having the aircraft, and it might be that they've got the pilots and don't have a handful of cabin crew, they're suddenly left with an option of not providing a service or having to bring us in as an entirety to provide all of the component pieces of the ACMI. So that happens. Um, we've done, we have provided contracts for, for essentially for route proving. You know, if we do one season for someone, they don't want to commit because they're not sure it will work. 
um, could be for startup airlines that just can't get everything spun up quick enough. Uh, you know, we're essentially a plug and play solution, or at least you know, that's part of our offering is to be able to, if someone rings us up today for and they're, you know, an airline and they want to fly tomorrow and we've got the capacity, we can do that. Or in fact, one of our services that, that we that we offer is, I believe it's a USP, certainly in this country, is the one hour go now. So if someone rings us up and we have capability we, from confirmation, we will launch an aircraft in one hour. Um, and yeah, that's typically in the rescue scenario, but that's, so we'll have crews on standby within 30 minutes of the airport to basically report in 30 minutes to then launch our aircraft from our hangar to be airborne into wherever you know, the customer's airport of choice is um, within an hour. Um, and you know that obviously takes a lot of infrastructure a lot of fixed cost associated to that so our prices reflect that but um that's part of the capability that we offer um it could also be you know the max issues for the aircraft anyone that knows the industry a few years ago when the uh seven the max had their, their tragic events and where the global fleet was grounded suddenly if you've got a max you've you've got a hole to fill very quickly um the 787 dreamliners several years ago had engine issues that were, were drawn out for a long period of time and maintenance requirements where aircraft were grounded because there was issues and mandated to essentially not fly um so there the, the, i suppose the source of the requirement can be multifaceted um recovery from the pandemic was another one people weren't spun up quick enough to deliver the bounce back that happened relatively quickly last year um so we you know the last couple of years have been very buoyant for us for that reason um the flip side is when things get lean you're the first people that to be cut and you're yeah. you're, the, you're 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 not you're not your services aren't needed so it can be quite lumpy in that respect mm. so in essence if i wanted to set up first intuition airlines yeah then i could come to you and you could supply the plane the crew do everything that i needed and i would just have to take bookings and uh, yeah we would we would still have the easy part of that job though, because you would need you would need you would need an AOC, so you need yeah. to have an operating certificate first. And yeah. they don't come easy; they they take months, years of setup to have. So you've got to be an airline in the first instance, which then requires safety systems, safety manuals, and everything that comes with being an airline. So you need all that infrastructure first. But to get an OC, you need your own aeroplane. So you've gone and had to have sourced and paid for an aeroplane anyway. Right. Okay. So my second aircraft. Would be the second aircraft would be us. Well, the first one would just be sat there, not going anywhere. Because um, according to Richard Branson, you just hire a plane and sell tickets at the airport by yeah. writing a handwritten poster. So yeah. uh, things must have changed since little, those days. A little bit. Um, and that's some poetic license going on. And then <laughs> uh, the third revenue strand you talked about, which I think I get, is um, if, if I wanted to charter your planes to go and fly me somewhere. And yeah, basically, ring me up, open planes. your checkbook and tell me where you want to go. It's keeping it simple yeah um so the charter side is, is typically business to business we do a few individuals that have won a lottery or, or similar and that is genuine uh genuine scenario um that so the customers in that scenario would be governments military football teams we do a lot of work for the uk football teams national football teams male and female um tour operators so in the winter ski flights down to the french alps for a tour operator so we're not selling the tickets in any of those scenarios we are selling the whole plane is an exclusive charter. We have uh, automotive trips when they're doing, you know, launching new cars down in the med or uh, incentive trips. We have long-term contract to provide two aircraft to a luxury tour operator that provides essentially uh, around the world cruise, but in an aeroplane. So you really right. need a big checkbook now. Um, <laughs> but it's a very high-end, low-capacity uh, configuration, a private jet essentially, uh, for, um, that. Yeah, three four week tour to 
around the world it's essentially like imagine like a cruise but we provide the aircraft part and the service for that so mm-hmm. quite a you know, band tours for you know, people go on tour of south america or we've supported um the around the uh, around the world race seven marathons in seven continents world record attempts all sorts of weird and wonderful things um world record singing at the highest altitude concerts DJs they want to park the airplane up into a DJ on an airplane for a launch of something filming <laughs> um so it's a right or mix essentially if you've got a use for airplane and willing to pay for it and we can do it and it makes sense to do it yeah then you know, that, it that sounds like the most fun that you just have like random things but it yeah, also it's very random for someone that runs a business it would the the, the kind of random nature of it would just scare the life out of me. Yeah. You know, nah. I, I like those nice regular contracts where you've got a regular amount of revenue coming in every single month. Mm, you would the like idea to hear that. that someone <laughs> might want to go into the park yeah. in the air and have a contract that would scare me a little bit. But one of the things you mentioned, Steph, is you, you talked about um, kind of uh, new routes and proving routes and things like that. And I just wanted to, to kind of just have a quick chat with Phil because Phil, my for some reason. It's, over the last 24 hours, my inbox has been absolutely filled with every single marketing email that comes through to me is telling me that there's going to be a new route to Paris flying to the South End opening at the end of the summer. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, just just made me think of that. So, again, anyone based in Essex, lovely route to look out for there to go for a weekend yeah. in Paris. But, but for an airport, what you know, we there's a huge... You know, amount of capital invested in an airport it's, it's yeah. a massive massive asset that must be really expensive to to maintain and um, from stefan's perspective i can see where his revenue streams are you know it's you know this company pays me this company pays me or rich individuals pay me but where are the different revenue streams for a um for an airport so there's a few so principally um every time you get on a plane and you fly out of an airport. So let's say you're, you're on that plane to Paris or on EasyJet from South End. I'll have earned as an airport a fee for every departing passenger. Now that will, that can be quite dramatically different across uh, different airlines. If you took an example like Heathrow, they'll have an absolute spectrum of anything from a couple of quid, anything up to maybe 50 pounds. So it all depends upon route, airline, the deal, et cetera. So we have a one income stream, which is our, our pure aviation income from the uh, the airlines themselves based on passengers then of course if you think about your journey through an airport there are essentially different points at which i will earn my money so how do you get to the airport so south end uh car parking huge airports um no, no two ways about it uh rail so in the instance of south end we own our rail station therefore we pick up uh, a larger percentage of of that ticket sale than maybe other airports would um, then, of course, there's taxis. They'll pay to have certain access, etc. Then as you move through the process, then you come into the actual departure lounge, which is, um, for no other way of putting it, like a shopping centre. That's what it is. Um, it's shops and it's uh, food and beverage. It's uh, world duty free. Uh, and the simplest way of looking at that is all of those various companies, whether it's like a Costa or a Pret or world duty free boots, um, they pay to, to be there and they can either be on a, a classic sort of rental agreement, but, but nine times out of 10 at an airport, it's essentially a concession fee. So it's a, it's a percentage of the turnover and that's on a set, set percent. So it could be 10, 12, 20%. Again, it depends on the sector. It depends on the commercial deal, the airport themselves. So that's how we earn our money. 
Um, here at South End, there's some additional um, routes in. We provide our own fuel, so we have a fuel service. Therefore, we will pick up a, a margin on that. Then we also have our private jet center. So again, you know, various airlines, for example, Titan, they could fly in there. They could fly into the jet center because they're using a football team. And that football team's come for our broker to use South End, for example. Um, we've then got the hotel. So we're unique in as much as the, those that do know the airport know that there's a, there's a holiday inn on, on site. That's actually ours. We, we own that. So again, we, we take, we take the revenue, we take the profit from, from that. So, um, they're our main sources of income. That's probably the same at other, other airports as well. So same, same at Stansted, just different size, different scale at, th- at this point. So, um, it's varied, definitely. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I'm just thinking now of every time I go on holiday, and I, I usually go via Stansted because Stansted mm-hmm. is is on my doorstep. And you're absolutely right, when I get dropped off and the taxi driver is paying money for the for the ridiculous what seven pounds drop off for fifteen minutes or whatever it is. Yeah. Um. That that goes a chunk of that goes to the airport. Mm-hmm. Then when I'm walking through, I always have something to eat before I get on a flight. So I'm always spending money there. So the airport's either getting a percentage of that or yeah. the airport's receiving a rent or something like that. Yeah. Um, and then I imagine, yeah, when I get on the plane, my part of my ticket is going to the airport. Yeah. When I'm sitting on the, well, hopefully, you know, when the, when the fuel's loaded onto the plane, I don't quite know when that happens, if I'm on the plane or not at the time. Um, then yeah, sometimes, yeah. sometimes. Yeah, you can okay. be on the plane, yeah. <laughs> Um, then a chunk of that, the the, the fuel that goes in that, a chunk of the revenue from that again yeah. is going to the um, it's going to the airport. So it's lots and lots of different uh, revenue streams right across every aspect yeah. of the plane. I guess one thing that I that I've always been told this, and I don't know if it's a hundred percent true or not, but is it the fact that whenever I get say a Ryanair flight mm-hmm. or an EasyJet flight at any airport, I have to walk about four miles to get to that plane because it's at the furthest part from the airport. Yeah. Now, I'm always told that's because those airlines pay the lowest fee to have their planes there. Is that correct or is that just so, a, yeah. a myth? Without getting into specifics, but yes, I would say as a rule of thumb, as you could imagine, there are different operators, uh, there's different airlines, they will pay different fees. So if I use a Danstead as a good example, um, the, 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 the gates that are walkable are likely to carry those that are paying more. So they are more likely to be your long-haul destinations or your long-haul airlines. So a good example would be likes of Emirates, probably even Jet2, because they'll do the, the sort of, um, we, call, we call it bucket and spade, but principally your, your your seasonal leisure stuff. And then, yes, your uh, Ryanair, for example, is considered an ultra-low-cost carrier. So it's in the name. That's that's their business model is to pay out as little as possible and go for maximum volume. So, yes, typically they're not going to be given the premium space, if I can put it like that. And Heathrow is probably a really good example of that. Huge infrastructure. Without a doubt, you've got areas of the airport that are far more exclusive than others. Some have air bridges, some don't. Um, they're going to give those to the airlines that pay them more money. I think that's just normal commercial activity, if I'm honest. And the airlines themselves, Ryanair, wouldn't want it any other way, or EasyJet or other low-cost carriers before I get myself in any trouble. That's their business model. That's their business model, is to pay as, as little as possible. 
Yeah. yeah. And, and I guess if you're one of the, the kind of the, the premier flag carrying aircraft, yeah. you don't want your passengers to have to trek a mile no. and a half to get there. You want them to be able to walk straight onto the plane. And that's what you, that's what you're paying for. That's what for you're paying for. Exactly. Yeah. If you're, if you are, I mean, first class is maybe an extreme example because it has its own product. But if you've paid business class, you don't want to have to get a bus over to a satellite terminal. You want to walk in. You want it to be pleasant. You've paid a lot of money for that, so the airlines made a lot of money for that, and they would have passed on a, a, a fair chunk of that. So I think it just it flows as you'd expect on a commercial basis. Mm. And, so, and, and I guess that when you talk about private jets landing, um, I, I, I imagine you're hoping, as I think the entire population of South End is hoping, that the consortium involving Dwayne the Rock Johnson is actually <laughs> going to take over South End. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. A few people sent me something about that. I mean. If it were to happen, it would be probably pretty good because, yeah, I mean, if you just look at why and how and the benefit at Wrexham, mm. I mean, we're even better placed. If the Rock and lots of various super wealthy people were flying private jets into South End, that's great for one part of our business. And then it's just also South End becomes a not a bigger destination in its own right, which is then good for the hotel, et cetera. So, yeah, it can grow quickly. I mean, an airport is all about volume. It's, it, it, there's no other way to look at it. It's about m- the more passengers that pass through your terminal, the more money you make, of course, in a very simplistic term. So anything that drives more um, sort of focus on this area, whether it's as a destination or just or just it grows the market that surrounds you, that's great. I mean, our market really goes beyond South End. Uh, unlike any airport, you have your own immediate market, then there's the sort of sectors beyond that. But... If more people then travel in on the train from London to come to South End, I'll pick up some of that, even if they don't go into um into my airport. So yeah, it would be um whether it will happen, I don't know, but yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't I say know, no. I know that's a question that could date very, very quickly by the yeah. time that this actually gets released. Yeah, of course. It could have been yeah. completely yeah. quashed. Um yeah. <laughs> But they 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 were the two big new piece of news. And the thing I do I do notice about South End, uh, you know, I spend a bit of time in South End. We teach classes in South End. I know quite a few businesses in South End. It it does seem to be a place that, that there's been a real buzz around over the last year or so. I think since it yeah. acquired city status, it seems to me that I don't necessarily know if there's been any external funding, but it feels like businesses are are more inclined to fund to to, to kind of be putting money into their businesses to grow. And it does feel like a good place to be working right now. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's we're no different to the other airports, and except the other airports are, it, and this is in the London market. So you've got airports all around the UK. The, the, the difference about London South End, of course, being the smallest of the London airports, is we're in the London market, and that is the busiest, biggest market in the world in terms of airspace, and will once again be very soon over capacity, full to the brim. That's where we come in. And that's where we came in before the pandemic. So before I joined the business, it was growing and it was growing at a rapid and um, at a rapid pace and doing very well. It was way beyond 2 million passengers, would have very soon got to 3 million and beyond. So the difference for us, unlike a, a Gatwick or a Heathrow and even Stansted, is where their hubs, the airlines during the pandemic, deconsolidated back to their main hubs. If you're not a main hub, you lost your airlines like others around the country so we're basically a startup that's how we're acting that's how we operate that's how the new management team which are all 
new within the last year. Our new CEO joined sort of six months ago. It's a completely different mindset that we're in as to grow this business uh, as rapidly as we can, not only from a financial return, but operationally. There's an infrastructure play here that you can't just go and get five million passengers overnight. You have planning, you have environment. There's, there's, you know, again, there's, uh, like Stefan was saying, when you start to break your business apart as CFO, there's, oh, crikey, and lots of things you're involved in that actually sit outside of finance. I probably spend less than half of my time on pure finance. Is that the classic function? So yeah, it's, um, we're in a interesting place. We're at the, at the very beginning of our upward curve. Okay. And uh, I, I hadn't actually kind of grasped that would be an issue in terms of you, you talked about the pandemic there. Mm. And I'm going to ask Stefan in a minute about pandemic in, in his particular business. But the, the other airports, I guess, had, you know, uh, th- th- those, as you described, the kind of the people going back to their hubs and yep. you kind of left because you weren't a hub air, air, airport for a particular airline. Yeah. No one, everyone moved away from you and went back to Gatwick or went back to Stansted or Luton yep. or wherever it was. Yeah. And then you're effectively now looking at this as a startup business. So you've got to Basically. attract airlines, yeah. attract people. Um, yeah. what, what's the, I guess, the plan over the next kind of two, three, four, five years then for, you know, what, what is it you're looking to try and achieve? Yeah. I mean, it is, is it is entirely growth. So it's, it's attracting back, um, the airlines, uh, routes, therefore passengers, it's attracting additional airlines. So, I mean, before the pandemic, you know, EasyJet were based here, Ryanair, there were some others as well. They, they deconsolidated back. So the difference there is Ryanair at Stansted, when the COVID was over and you could fly again, they just turned stuff back on and suddenly they're doing 20 million passengers again or, or on that journey at Stansted, which we've got to actually go back out commercially and attract that business back to the airport and, and redo the deals um, and bring them back because right now the London market is growing and it's growing very well and it will be back at capacity. You do have to then break it into long haul, short haul Europe, but it's all turning back on as we would want it to. So in maybe a year or two's time, if you're a low cost carrier into Europe, there will be no space into London. You can come to us basically, but in these first few years, there is enough capacity. So it's tra- sort of trying to do the good deals and incentivize, as you'd expect, work with them commercially to bring them into South End Airport and, and kickstart operations again. So it's all about growth. It's all about passengers. It's a very, I think of it as a very, it's a very simple model. It, nothing, nothing happens if there aren't passengers walking through that door. So you start there and everything falls out from that. Yes, you get into pricing. Yes, you get into how much you sell a coffee for or your, 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 your um, people who rent from you do your car parking dynamics, of course, but all of that is pointless if you don't have an airline or airlines operating through your airport um, regularly as well, because then you get into then the operation of your business. So you want lots of flights daily in and around the same time, because then your rostering of people is better than if they're all spread everywhere. Um, and that's where I spend a lot of time as well. I, I spend a massive chunk of my time working closely with the ops team and the ops director to understand the operations, what's required, what's the output. And it's just, it's finding that balance between the airlines in and the, uh, and flowing money in the top, but not bleeding yourself dry in terms of costs. Therefore, you could have lots of passengers, but you might just simply be spending too much to service them. And therefore you're still making a loss. So, um, 
for us, next three to five years is get it back to where it was. Mm. And uh, when, when you just you know, drop numbers in there and you're talking about 3 million passengers or 20 million passengers, mm. Mm. And, mm. and you start just to think about, well, if each passenger walking from the train, going to the terminal, grabbing a Costa, getting yep. a baguette, maybe doing a bit of shopping somewhere, getting on the aircraft, all the way along those, those little bits of revenue, you know, some of those big airlines, the big airports, they've got 20 million passengers a year and things like that. There's a phenomenal amount of money that's going yeah. through the terminal every year. Yeah. But then you just look at the space and you look at the sheer amount of, of yeah. capex that's had to have been incurred in order to, to get them there. And the maintenance of an, air, of, of, yeah. an airport cannot be cheap. So the, the, the operations of any airports, if you take us, the smallest airport, and I'll compare us very briefly to Heathrow, Heathrow is bigger there's more terminals, there's more people, but they they have we have to go through the same regulatory scrutiny cost uh, approach as they do. It's on a smaller scale, but it's as complicated. We have to it's everything from we have to be involved in controlling and looking after and being involved in the airspace because that's a, that is its own market. If that if that if that makes sense, the airspace around your airport and your surrounding airports. There's looking after our infrastructure. There's minimum staffing levels, licenses, training. So yeah, the, the minute the, the the license to operate, even with no passengers, but to be open and licensed under the Civil Aviation Authority, have an aerodrome license, is very expensive, very expensive. So, um, but at the same time, get it right. Look at Heathrow's numbers. Look at Stansted's numbers. They make a lot of money. Yes, yeah. cash as well. Yeah. Yeah. And the, uh, uh, as you said, the, the strategy is to grow numbers. Um, and when you talk about doing the right deals, this is something that I can really relate to having, you know, working for a business where we were a startup, you know, 12 mm. years ago. Mm. And you have that kind of conflict about, you know, winning business today and, you know, potentially having to discount in order to win business today, but also then looking forward three, four, five years time, do yeah. you want to be sitting there with that really deep discount when your capacity, when everything around you is at capacity and you're going to have yeah. lots more customers? And it's, yeah. it's, yeah, it is a real balancing act as to, you know, whether you make that deal today. And I imagine, you know, understanding some of the business practices of, of some of the, the airlines that they can be quite aggressive with you in terms of demands yeah. that they would have um, yeah. to fly out of your airport and thinking, well, I need it now. So I need yeah. these passengers to come through now, but how would that look in five years time, six years time? Which Yeah. The, the dynamic is, will shift. It will We're we're in a startup mode. So we're, we're uh, to, to an extent we're a price taker. You flip over to West London and look at Heathrow they're so busy, they're full. Everyone wants to be there. And regardless of size, they're a price setter without a shadow of a doubt. You want to be here. This is what you need to pay. If you're not interested, I'll take airline B, C, D or E that are lined up. So it, it flips. And even a Stansted, they're fine when it comes to peak European Ryanair. They are full to the brim, but they want to fill their shoulders. They want to fill the middle of the day. They want the long haul. They want the full service carriers. So they're then competing with Heathrow. So they'll have to price take to some degree so it's um it's a it, i mean i think it's a fascinating industry and everyone i worked with thinks it's fascinating and, and mm. is pretty hooked on it so um yeah there's lots to it yeah we could we no, I think between us amazing. and stefan yeah we could fill the next five hours I think. <laughs> easily and then yeah. i think that that idea of the, the the slots in the morning 
are oversubscribed, but we really want to get slots in the middle of the day and we're prepared to discount those. But the things in the morning, we, we're going to tell you the price that you're paying. I think yeah. that, that kind of dynamic is, is really, one, really interesting um, and just tough, I think, for a lot of people to understand. Because most people just think, well, you know, it, it's, you know, it's just a bus, isn't it? Like anything else, it just comes in, it picks you up, it goes out. Why is it different from one bus to another when you've got that market dynamic? Really interesting. Mm-hmm. Stefan, I do, I do want to kind of talk to you because I, I, I asked Phil a little bit about the strategy of the airline. The strategy of the airline is, is to grow passenger numbers coming through the, the airports, the, the airports. Um, as a, as an, an airline, what, what, what is, you know, what are your plans for the next kind of two, three, four, five? If you've got plans for longer than that, what are they? Oh, two or three, four months, maybe not years. Can I <laughs> um, so I suppose we sit at a very different part. So Phil was saying that at the bottom of that upward curve, we, we're, uh, I suppose, at the top of that in the sense of uh, ignoring the, the blip. I call it a blip. It was a, a, a trough of, of the pandemic. We have been an organically growing business for quite a number of years. We, you know, we're privately owned. So we, I suppose our overarching objective is we're a niche business. We operate in a relatively small part of the market. We know that that has a limited size. We're never going to have 100 aeroplanes. It just there isn't the market for that. Um, being independently owned, we then aren't. You know, we haven't got a five-year growth plan to reach you know PEX or anything like that. So you then you the dynamics of what we then set out to achieve become maybe slightly different from from other businesses. Um, it sounds silly, but I suppose our, our chairman founder's motto is uh, "Don't crash and don't go bust." <laughs> um and actually when you first hear it you think well that's a bit childish a bit silly but actually when you break it back down to the base of what you're actually saying there is let's operate safely and we need to make money because if you're not operating safely well it speaks for itself and you're not making money you're not going to be here um so actually you start with anything you do has to first operating you know basic principle operate safely um and then it's looking at how we make money and it's not about you know making maximum return off of any individual scenario it's fundamentally having a business that is sustainable mm-hmm. uh, very much uh, our brand our people the service that we offer is very much at the center of what we do so it's when you break down the basic motto you kind of there's a lot more layers to it but um very much care for what the titan name is in the industry and most people outside of industry won't have heard of it but actually in the industry it's relatively small so we are very well known we have a very strong reputation um phil talks about it being being essentially a volume and a price game ours is more of a premium game so it's a very different approach to yeah there is obviously clearly volume to it but actually where we sit um some of our competitors go for pure volume whereas ours is actually premium driven um and that's partly due to the service we overall offer is more complicated more varied therefore has greater infrastructure so you have to have a higher price to that but we hope and aspire to therefore deliver a service that reflects reflects that um, we can do unique things that other people just can't do as well which helps so essentially for us really is is maintaining that position whilst continuing some organic growth we have disposed of three aircraft this year which leaves us slightly smaller on fleet than last year and that's strategic they are the oldest three so as part of partly the environmental position to it, partly modernizing the tech, partly staying ahead of our competition, you know, the barriers to entry when you put yourself into the premium market with newer technology and so on become far higher. Um, it's far easier to pick up and run an older aircraft that's cheaper and do everything in that sense. It's easier to replicate. It's still not easy, but easier to replicate than, than where we try and position ourselves. So it's very much focusing on that regeneration of 
uh, the fleet, continuing the fleet renewal, adding back into a, really a couple more aircraft essentially um, that, to get us back to a size that kind of works. And taking a bit of breath and just putting back in, you know, we were a startup off the back of a pandemic for sure. We felt like a startup, but with some legacy headaches um, because of the pace of which we returned from full on to nothing to whatever happened in the middle to suddenly rebounding, which I think you want to talk about the pandemic effects. So I won't go too much at this moment, but that period of just re- making things happen for 12 months in a startup mode to now element of, right, let's catch up breath a little bit on that and, put some stability back into the foundations to allow then uh, a more organic position to continue for the next few years overlay that with being opportunistic we are an entrepreneur opportunistic nimble in what's not an overly nimble industry which helped us massively in 2020 saved us in 2020 in fact um so i say all that and next week there'll probably be a different answer you'll get because something would have happened there'll be an opportunity that turned up somhere that we don't haven't yet foreseen um the forecast will be updated for the 15th time this month because something else has changed or something new has turned up <laughs> and that is the nature of who we are and what we do yeah yeah so you three three aircraft have been disposed of and you said that you still need to buy another two aircraft is that right that's yeah i mean that's a loose plan the opportunities do not exist currently um and we typically uh, people talk about have you got a five-year plan absolutely not uh, uh we, the, the plan is to still be in five years doing what we do best and how we get there will be let's see what turns up let's see what opportunities exist see what we can develop what new markets we can create new what new products we can design because we are very innovative innovative we would ideally like to increase our fleet size because it is smaller than it was and smaller than it kind of needs to be for the cost base we have um the market conditions for assets currently available are constrained a bit like the car market is in the UK in the sense of supply chain challenges. The COVID stopped production for a period of time. So therefore the lag effect of that for new and then news and then the whole knock on effect of that is very much the same with aircraft. Production was cut in 2020, 2021, slow to ramp up supply chain issues globally on everything. Um, the whole effect that that has had and then overlaid with the rebound of the global economy. Okay, you could question this compared to where it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's just the asset available, supply and demand of assets just doesn't, you know, doesn't exist for opportunities currently. Airlines didn't fail in a period when you would have expected them to fail because they were mm-hmm. propped up by government. So you've not had the usual market dynamics that would have would have been in play have been very much disrupted. So in terms of finding those two airplanes to replace the older ones that we've, wanted to get rid of has is probably slightly more challenging than it would have been a few years ago and and probably a little bit more challenging than maybe we gave it credit for but um we're in a good place so we wait we wait for the right opportunity we are not going to take something because it's available if it's overpriced just because the supply and demand will create that price increase um because you don't want to buy something overpriced or obtain an operating lease that you signed up to a bit like you're talking about heavy discount we're not going to do the opposite and overpay day one because we need it to then be stuck with that legacy position for however long so um yeah essentially we need someone else to another airline to go bust is really what we're waiting for uh, <laughs> as, as, as that sounds but someone's misery someone else is going you, we need an opportunity to exist where our ability to react quickly then puts us at the forefront you know, typically deals are big a bit like phil was saying in terms of size in a big industry you have all of the complications you also you know, we're not about to go place an order for 25 aeroplanes. So we, mm. in a sense, are feeding on the crumbs. We know that, but we then make sure we're positioned to when those crumbs exist, snap them up real quick. Um, and a particular career highlight of mine is exactly one of those scenarios. 
it was a failing airline needed to dispose of an asset and literally within I don't know, 48 hours we were on a private jet to a European airport to view the aeroplane and sat around and negotiated a deal and within a week we bought an aeroplane um, anyone that knows what's involved to make that happen that doesn't happen um, but we did uh, we worried about what we'd do about it later the deal was there we, we snapped mm-hmm. it up and figured out where we'd fund it from and what we'd do with it after the fact the deal was too good but there were you know, everyone else would have still been doing their business cases mulling it over yeah. seeking board approvals we were on a jet making it happen um so that's that's where we sit in the market and we know that and that's what we have to wait for so that, i mean that just sounds amazingly glamorous that uh, uh, you were <laughs> in a jet flying over to an undisclosed european airport to negotiate <laughs> it was a main one but i don't want to say that that might uh, start to give away a little bit too much details but uh <laughs> But yeah, it's yeah. I mean, that's that that was a pretty exciting three weeks when you went all of that process, a whirlwind, and there's plenty of hours that went into it. But when you look at the things that you've done and the kind of you know, let's say it's a career highlight. It's, it's you know, I'm, I'm blessed with the ability and the opportunity to do things like that. I appreciate that that doesn't come for everybody or in every job and everywhere. So as Phil said, the aviation industry is, is a bit of a hook gets you in because things like that happen, things like that exist. Um, mm. Yeah, and I think when you go into the world of finance, thinking what an accountant might be. That doesn't come up when people are telling you what accountants do. Um, so, and again, but that's where that's where my job is. Phil said less than fifty percent is probably pure finance and numbers because you're then buying airplanes, <laughs> raising debt to buy airplanes. Yeah. Uh, that's the bit I enjoy more. And and I think it's true when I speak to anyone who is um, who's got a, a senior finance position. I would say outside of an accounting practice, so working for any kind of business, and you just ask the question of. Yeah. How often do you use the skills that you learn for your professional exams? And then she sits and goes, well, I, I never use deferred tax. You know, I, I very, you know, once a year, I need to engage my brain with financial reporting. Um, someone else does my management accounts for them. So what do you spend most of your time doing? And the, the closest you really have is, well, I have to explain to the board what the accounts that someone else has produced actually mean to them. Um, rather than actually, you know, have to engage with a lot of that work, but it's those steps to get there. And I think the the most used skill, if I if I kind of surveyed a group of um, FDs and said, what's the most useful skill that you have that you use on a daily basis? They almost always say problem solving. So the number of things that come over my desk, where it's I've got a problem with this, there's an issue with this, how do we resolve this? That's the thing that that that, that they use and they flex more often than anything else. Um, something that I know people listening just, if they're anything like me, wouldn't realise is that the opportunities to buy planes aren't there at the moment for the planes that you're looking no. for. And no. you know, part of me just thinks that you know, surely there's like a an aircraft equivalent of a garage out there. You go in, you test drive a plane, you then sign the lease documents and you fly it back home. But it just doesn't happen like that. No. It really doesn't. Um, they're a little bit expensive to have parked up in a garage for a start. Um, and with, a, I suppose, a, pretty much a duopoly on supply, there isn't, there isn't, there isn't a readiness of supply of new. Um, yeah. That's been constrained for too long. Boeing have been in a mess for a very long time now, all well publicised. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually, yeah, when you look at all the factors, and with the aviation typically going, you have to also remember when you're talking about aviation, it's a global market it's a global industry the plane that we have disposed of will end up anywhere in the world and vice versa yeah. we'll acquire them from anywhere in the world so you're then taking into fact when you consider the growing middle classes in places like china and india the 
you know, that is then creating a huge market that didn't exist 20, 30 years ago. All this fact is supply just doesn't keep up over the long term. Um, we were in discussions about getting a new aircraft. And if, you know, without an order, the fact we will deliver you one if you place an order today in 2029. And if you go to a lessor that's got a very big order book with a uh, manufacturer, they've said, yeah, but I've got this massive order book. In fact, the biggest order book in the world. And you next one available for you will be 2028 because I've placed them all already. So that's for new. And when that's yeah. that constrained, yeah. you then have the secondary effect. If, if you've got an operating lease expiring, I can't replace it. So I have to extend it. Uh, and it's very similar if anyone's tried to buy a, a car in the last year or two. If you've gone for a new car, the wait list is, is way more than what you'd expect for very similar factors to the aircraft. Yeah. Used car prices have shot up because of the change in the dynamics to the market. It's exactly the same aeroplanes, just with a few noughts on the end. And mm-hmm. if you're talking about having to wait a few months or a year, again, the lead times are, and the supply chain is so complicated mm. that you can't, it's not an easy fix. You know, the, you, the, the manufacturer of the aircraft might have got themselves sorted, but they're now waiting on this colossal supply chain to provide them. Mm-hmm. Brexit had an impact. The pandemic's had an impact. The war in Ukraine has, has had an impact. So they're all quite big shocks to the system in relative short period of time that don't, won't, don't and just won't recover overnight. Yeah. Um, it's going to be years or another event that changes that causes a shift and a correction somewhere to put that shock back in the other way to correct some of this, which isn't, you know, don't foresee it. Um, but you know, typically the shocks are then the things that happen that are unforeseen. But mm. as currently stands, there was a, a stat that I can't remember exactly what it was, but essentially that supply and demand gap yeah. has got five, six, seven years to play out with the current projected rates of everything. Wow. Yeah. So it's, so you're then left with, waiting for some crumbs somewhere or waiting for something to happen or waiting for some, you know, we, we did take on aircraft last year, which was one of the, t- the replacements for the three that was parked up in the desert. It was repossessed during the pandemic. It had been placed with an airline for last summer. Um, and for whatever reason, I don't know the details that deal fell through. So this airplane was expected to be, you know, earning rental income within literally weeks. Um, and that's where we then turn up. And that's where we can then say, well, fine, we will get a deal done. You know, we literally were sat here with board approvals for you. Let's let's make this happen. Give us to the plane when you plan to give it to the other airline. And there aren't many people in the many airlines that would be able to take that opportunity that quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, just at the moment, those opportunities are quite rare. Yeah. Yeah. Something I do want to move on to because I, 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 there's loads of things that you've mentioned there that I'd love to talk about. And I, I would love to talk about the impact of things like Brexit on, on the aviation industry. I can see fake people's faces crumpling as I mention it, because I, I know that has had an impact. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about the, the pandemic and kind of like shrinking the market, but I think the, the thing that is probably impacting people more than anything at the moment is that it's kind of referred to as that kind of cost of living crisis that we have, but we have inflation running at, at kind of record levels. We also have interest rates that are, are rising on a almost on a monthly basis, um, and that's impacting a lot of people's personal finances with mortgage payments increasing, um, grocery bills increasing, fuel, heating, all of those kind of bills have gone up enormously over the last 18 months or so. Um, in other industries where I speak to people, I, I know particularly in the food industry, um, I, I spoke to people about a year ago and they were saying that they were putting price rises through about every, I think it was about every six weeks, they were having to increase prices just because they were having to, to still try and make a margin because all of their cost base was increasing. 
Um, if I start with you, Phil, you've got a, a big site. I imagine lots and lots of overhead there. Mm-hmm. Um, how are you able to manage that? And, and is that, you know, being passed on to the customer somehow? Are you able to do that or are you having to manage it different well, ways? Well, in, in part, I mean, the, the challenge that we have is where we sit as a, as a business. So obviously we're in our startup phase. So I don't have, we don't have an awful lot of influence, if you like, on that revenue side from the airlines. You know, that is a negotiation. So it's more a case of, demand from them what we can do what we can't do it sort of sets it sets itself flip side i do have uh, a big cost base um cost of living itself the biggest one of the biggest pressures is is from staff alone uh the national minimum wage increase um the need to do the right thing by staff um to attract you know the the labor market is is in a, in a really tough place just to get uh, the right sort of people. Uh, you've got other businesses that are able to and have done much bigger increases. So you become less competitive. You've then got a retention piece. So the people is my biggest cost, of course, all of those challenges. So that's put the price up. Um, you know, we want to be a responsible employer as well. So we've done the right thing to make sure our staff can survive and, 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 are, and are okay financially as best we can. You've then got things like electricity. I mean, we use a fair chunk of that and that market went absolutely mental. Um, and again, sort of Stefan's points happen so rapidly. How well can a business react? And we had to, again, take the price of that, stomach that, go out there, work hard to do a better deal. But that's that, that erodes. It's, it's, the ability to pass a lot of this on is 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 limited right now. And even if we were really busy and we had five million and we had all these airlines they're in contracts they're in set prices for a period of time that do have the ability to to change but not every six weeks so relatively fixed at the top once it's in um where else can you then make some more money well if i'm not let's say i had a costa here for example or, or an operator i can't make them change their price they'll change their price but they'll have to do it sensibly so they don't price themselves out so again, if inflation's running really high, can they just put their prices up by ten or twelve percent? Probably not, because people won't come through. Um, and then there's the risk that ultimately we're in the leisure market. So if disposable income comes under too much pressure, simplistically people won't fly. But it, we've got, you know, we do our analysis. There's a shift. So if people were doing, I don't know, two holidays a year and one was long haul, there is a shift to some extent in some demographics that is both short haul, some are not doing it at all, but demand is still actually yeah. good. People are protecting their holiday. They're protecting their spend. They're still buying designer sunglasses. They're still spending on beers and champagne and Prosecco. Um, but it's, we'll wait and see because I don't think that's properly flushed itself through yet. Um, it's going to all be about mortgages and stuff like that being refixed, etc. But yeah, we've battled with this. That's a big part of what I've been doing over the last year is what can, can't we do? And, um, hands are relatively tight, if I'm honest, uh, which is very frustrating. Far less nimble, um, in regards to what we can and can't do. We're trying to get as much business in as quickly as we can. Whilst that's not there, I've just got to cash flow, uh, an expensive infrastructure based business, basically. Yeah. And, and, 
When I think of an airport, I do think of kind of large concrete buildings, runways, big towers, and always air conditioned, which is, <laughs> I, I know, very expensive to run. Yeah. I just, you don't see a lot of the people, do you? You don't no. see the baggage handlers. You don't see the no, people no. that are, are driving the trucks out to the, the planes, the people that are refueling the planes. Yeah. And yeah. you don't see the admin teams. You know, it's your accounts team when you go mm-hmm. through through the airport. And there's there's all of those people that are carrying out work. And you're absolutely right. A tweak of minimum wage, then it, it's not just the people on minimum wage is paid to increase. Everyone's pay is also going to be increased. Yeah. And of, yeah. you know, proportionally, um, and if you've committed to those airline contracts at a certain rate, those aren't going to change that yeah, easily. Yeah, um, yeah. I know one uproar there was, you know, in my village when um, South, when Sandstead's parking rates increased for, for dropping people off. And it's, you know, just putting your parking prices up, you know, causes a, a front page in the local news newspaper headlines. So it's, yeah. it's tough to do any of those things. But, yeah, it's, it's in my industry, it's all labour. And labour is the, the biggest single cost that we have. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. It's, you know, those, you know, we don't pay anyone minimum wage, I don't think. Hope not. Um, but if minimum wage does increase, it does have a knock-on effect on you know, people's expectations and mm. you know cost of living. Also, you know, just to be a reasonable employer, you've got to help mm. help your employees deal with those cost of living pressures as well. So I, I completely understand those kind of frustrations. Um, do you? Is things like cost of borrowing something that doesn't impact you? Are you mainly equity funded or is there a an element of debt that's going to be funded? Yeah. Well, there is ultimately. So our, our structure at the moment is we're, we're wholly owned by Eskin. So right. the, the airport group, if you like, is, is ultimately owned by Eskin, uh, who, who are, who are a PLC. So, um, through various financing previously, that's all in place, but. You know, on the agenda is a big part of my role is the continuous refinancing. So yeah, since uh, they lasted it, it's a more expensive environment. So that will have to be factored in at a time when we're we're obviously still sort of at a critical part in our in our in our growth. So um, that that certainly is a a big consideration. You know, of the pure finance stuff, there's certainly an awful lot of time spent with my sort of FP&A team. You know, to Stefan's point, uh, we are quite busy when it comes to reforecasting, liquidity, cash is king. That's the one thing you learn at college that absolutely remains true without a shadow of a doubt. So when they say, when a tutor says cash is king, unless you're working for something mega like Amazon that's got an absolute ton of it, for the real world, cash is king. Uh, so yeah, that, that sticks with me truly to this day. So we spend a lot of time, as you'd expect, looking at liquidity, looking at the refinancing options. I work with then our key stakeholders in that regard, our key creditors and then our and our shareholders to make sure we're, we're doing uh, uh, getting the best price, if you, if I can put it that way, and have access to what we need to sort of try and do our equivalent of what of what Stefan can do and go out there and grab what we need to at the time and not have to wait and analyze it for, for a year. Uh, it's a, it's a slower moving world, but you still have to be nimble in our own way, and you need money often to do that. Um, yeah, yeah I, th- I think that for for a lot of people working in finance, we've had fifteen years of of rock bottom interest rates, mm. and I, I know that from from teaching management accounting and, uh, and kind of things like treasury. People always laugh at me and just say, well, treasury, there's nothing to it. You just flip one borrowing onto another bit of borrowing and you've got, you know, virtually zero rates as it is. 
But now you're looking at having to make real decisions about how your balance sheet structured and that kind of debt and equity argument is something that's far more yeah. real for people now, especially for those kind of smaller businesses that you know have got to make massive decisions about how how they are going to be financing for growth. Well, it's it's um, the lenders as well. The lenders are just more nervous. They're all concerned yeah. about the risk of you know default. But and again, it will vary in sectors. But yeah, yeah. I mean. In our sector, as a smaller airport, we may be plan- playing the London market, but you know, Doncaster went down. There's a re- yeah, so it's, it can be specific in the market, but just in general, they they've all got more nervous because I think they've been shocked a wee bit about what's happened. So it's, yeah. the conversations are not as simple as as you said they were pre-pandemic when cost of borrowing and access to credit was far easier. Yeah, and then you mix that with historically high um inflation rates and it's yeah it's yeah. a challenging environment i think for everyone um yeah. stefan for, for for you at titan how are those cost of living pressures impacting you uh yeah so i suppose potentially not in the way that that people might initially think i suppose if you think about all the drivers of the cost of living that you talked about actually they're not real big cost items for us so you know the electricity um you know the, the gas prices food pet as it was way back at the start when that shot up so so i suppose initially we those they, they didn't flow through to us and you might then think well the price of aviation fuel is linked to cost of living it's not uh, the price of oil currently has dropped from a six months ago when it was at a recent high we're kind of in the midpoint of that so there there was some shock to that with the ukraine war but actually that in a historic position is is in a midpoint so that doesn't have and they say it's about 35 percent lower than it was six months ago so and obviously fuel is a reasonable cost line as you'd imagine for us um where it is it's the secondary effect and the big one is the sack as famous phil said it's salaries um and it's not just the cost of living that's impacting salaries it's added fuel to what was already a challenging fire which was retention attraction uh, in a very competitive labor market that's yeah. constrained that has been a, always was, particularly when you're in the skilled roles, uh, that was then exaggerated by Brexit. It's the second time it'll come up. I suppose there's only two so far. You could, might tell I'm not a fan. Um, but essentially, it created a very small market for, for ourselves in a global industry that we stuck all of these rings around and made it very much, you know, tied ourselves in knots to some extent. Okay. The UK became a less attractive place for, for businesses and people to be. So if you're a pilot with a UK license, you can fly in the UK. If you've got a European license, you've got a much bigger market. Um, and they have now separate licenses. So if you're a pilot, you, EU pilots aren't going to get a UK license. What's the point? But a UK license, they, a UK license holder wants a EU license because it opens a lot more doors. So you start to layer that in. That's the pilot. So the particularly the pilot, the challenge is across our business engineers as well. Uh, skilled labour is is in, and you know we've been recruiting in finance and at senior levels that's hard. Uh, so all across the business we've been struggling to attract. Uh, it's a competitive market and therefore you have the retention issues um salaries are increasing probably 15 percent, if not more our competitors have done more um when we talk about competitors on the salary side to the operational side we don't compete with them as a business we our competitors are not the likes of the airplanes we see outside a window they tend to be our competitors are more european airlines in our market that people wouldn't have heard of who have a very much different cost pressure, different salary base to start with. But we're then having to compete with, you know, our pilot, who are they going to go and work for? British Airways, Jet2, 2, Easy Jet, people like that. So we have to be competitive enough with them on salaries and, and they have all been increasing their salaries significantly because of the pressures of competition for talent. Mm. Um, so that 
the, the 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 mix the concoction of all of that lot has meant that the salary line and again we're we, we are a people business and it feels like we are a, you know our, our, we are a service industry it is then the people that deliver that high level of product day in day out and we're we've always been you know family owned part of what we're about is is the people and looking after them so there's an element of um having to for competitive but also doing what's what is the right thing um, might not be right for the economy because wage inflation is causing you know, sorry wage increases is, is, is now a fuel to the inflation fire but um so that's that's been a big challenge for us and it's one that we're struggling to pass on to customers because your total cost base is only so much they'll tolerate we do have the privilege and i feel with our contracts a lot of them are short term in nature because we offer a bespoke project we often can be a price setter but there is always a limit um depends on the you know if someone rings me up in the middle of july and wants an airplane that day they're paying whatever number i give them and if they don't like it i'll give it to someone else if it's wow. november and they bring me up the price i'm i'm you know yeah. they've got they've got most of european fleet to choose from so I, I take the scraps if i want to um you work out yeah. how at what at what margin are you willing to do this for before it's not worth it so it, a very different dynamic from season to season mm. um and the second effect the secondary effect of cost of living is all of your supply chain contracts will have an inflation clause of some kind or most of them have something linked to rpi cpi mm. labor market labor indices material indices and you get over time now starting to see all of these kick in so you've got this tsunami of cost increases across the lower levels of your PL potentially anything yep. that's linked to aircraft and oem and engineering it's a monopoly or duopoly you're seeing 15 percent annual increases across those cost lines so yeah there's some pretty staggering increases but i suppose the effect has come secondary for us we weren't hit in the earlier stage of cost of living it's now coming as a wave but it's a real real headwind to this year and will no doubt impact margins as much as we can reprice yeah. some things and pass some of it on there's a to- people have a tolerance mm. i mean our competition typically is not in the uk most of our competition comes from the eu and the eastern part of that as well uh the, the dynamics for them are then slightly different so that makes the you know the pricing point a little bit more challenging so something you said just to clarify if you are a a uk pilot mm-hmm. that wants to fly into europe you have to have both a uk license and an eu license if you want right? to fly for a european airline fly which we have one of those we yeah we, right. we have tight now is Malta to deal with Brexit and a whole other story. It's another three hours of this conversation. But anyway, <laughs> because essentially when we were in the EU, it was one aviation market. So you had EASA, yeah. which is the European Aviation Safe uh, yeah. Body. The, the UK CAA was essentially part of the piece. So you had one set of licensing, probably for airports as well, I'd imagine, mm. um, that affected engineering licensing, pilot license. Everything you did was governed as a one common. When we separated from Brexit and the tr- lovely trade deals were all done, is the UK has decided to take back its own control. So then they have the UK Civil Asian Authority is separate from EASA. They're similar, but they now have separate rules. And yeah. you can't, the ability to switch between the two was initially supposed to be, well, they're basically the same. But oh no we've gold palated we've red taped um and it's made it very 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 difficult to be remain competitive as a uk-based airline we've been lobbying within industries but we're in the grand scheme of what we are in the aviation uk aviation industry we're very small but i will feel saying so how does our voice compare to ba's well it doesn't with a little drop yeah. in the pond next to the side and often our what we might want from competitive or market requirements is very different from what the larger carriers would want you know, they want to be able to sub in and support their fleet from anywhere they want to freely choose any airplane to bring in we don't want the ability you know we don't we don't necessarily want 
stop the EU carriers coming into the EU marketplace if we can access theirs reciprocally. And it, but it doesn't exist that way. So mm. the pilot thing is the same. You, the, the two markets are very different in size. What is the attractiveness of a UK pilot's license? Well, you're going to work for a UK airline only. Mm-hmm. If you've got an EU license, well, suddenly you've got a much much bigger, particularly when you look at the big carriers, Ryanair, EasyJet, BA, they're all both EU and UK airlines with aircraft in both both mm. with on both AOCs. So yeah. you can flick between them if you've got this dual licensing. Um, so the UK side is we've you know we, we've created a lot of restrictions for ourselves as a result of various disagreements that have been made. And that, that's one of the things that's caused a shortage of talent. In the, in the UK. In, I mean, there's, there's a bigger piece to it, but it's exaggerated in the UK as well. Right. Okay. Okay. And then, uh, do you see that with any, any other aspects of your staffing at all, or is it just, just within, within pilots that you've had issues with kind of uh, leaving the industry or leaving your ability to yeah, I mean, it's pretty much across the board, to be fair. There's an engineering issue in the, in the country. It's probably not just the country, probably across the globe, certainly in Europe, but in engineers in general, that, that type yeah. of skill set. The aviation you know, in the airport probably has the same issue. Yeah. The aviation Definitely. then is a specific version of that. The pool is much smaller. Mm. When you've lost some of the bigger carriers, you don't have the same apprenticeship schemes. The route in, the, the routes in are smaller. People just aren't coming into it. It's an aging workforce as well. Mm. Um, so that becomes... You know, and you can't just turn up, you can't you know, pick up a set of tools and become an aircraft mechanic or, or uh, mm. engineer overnight. It's, it's a, as you'd imagine, a fairly decent process to go through to understand and learn your trade, as you'd like to think. Um, so that is, again, because of the regulation, rightly so around the industry, a lot of things take a lot of time to to correct if they've not been maintained. Um, and then even when you look at the admin staff and the operational staff and office-based staff, the, this part of the country is, there's no unemployment around here. Mm-hmm. Um, so trying to attack, you know, David probably have the same, trying to find good quality people. It's just, yeah. there is pretty much zero unemployment in this area. And if it's so, it's very much a candidate market. Um, yeah. yep. Bill, are you seeing the same things? You, you've been nodding mm-hmm. quite a lot there. Are you seeing the same yeah. things in terms of staff Loads. issues? Absolutely. So it's a huge challenge for us so again similar to your aircraft engineers we have um air traffic engineers so you know your air traffic control tower that's some seriously technical equipment and again you've got to get that right because if planes start crashing there's a major problem so it it, i would say it's a dying trade but there's just not many of them and again you're competing with european bigger airports so there's there's that you know we we have a, a similar issue with our skilled workforce here it's just not we've not got the access to them that we need so on your security guard side again you put them through training but you're competing there in a, in a different market and as much as that's all about um what they can earn so why should i come and be a security guard and work you know long hours and have to do training and, and sometimes not the best hours uh versus i could go and you know work over here in um, a fast food restaurant or in prep that's up upped it to 15 16 18 quid an hour so you're competing in that sort of market a pure price a pure hourly rate place and then yeah our skilled workforce is is the same real real challenge finding engineers uh, across surface access across uh, air traffic control mechanics for our vehicles air traffic controllers as well that's um a particularly skilled air it's almost like the equivalent of your pilot so they are in scarce supply just they people just haven't gone into it. There's this massive lull 
a little bit like years ago when I was in PwC, that was coming out of the back of basically no one becoming an accountant. So there's a massive lull of accountants. Same thing. So they come at a very big premium. There's other airports that are then in the market, not only in the UK. So then the demand's high, lack of supply, high demand. So again, it's um, all very costly, basically. Um, <laughs> and there's not much you can do about it. You know, we're trying to hire in finance in, in certain roles. Absolute nightmare. Talent's not out there because everyone's, um, yeah, to, to Stefan's point, there's not unemployment in that respect. Everyone's in pretty good jobs had decent pay rises and they're probably playing it safe at the moment as well, I imagine. Now's not maybe the time to be moving. You lose protection, etc. So, um, yeah, it's hard to find good people. Yeah, and, and I'm running the risk of, of sending Stefan mad. Um, a few years ago, you could import some of that talent um, yeah. and mm-hmm. the ability to do that has been restricted, um, which particularly in areas that the area we're in, it's yeah, even more challenging to get that talent in. And I've, I've heard that in many, many industries. It's, it's not just in the airline industry and or at airports. It's, you know, within food production, it's within catering, it's within hospitality. It's yeah. virtually everywhere. You know, I, I, I know that personally, I, I used to teach classes that had lots and lots of European students in. We, we don't get continental European students in our, in our classes really anymore, not in the same volumes that we used to. Yeah. So it's, you know, Every, every area, I think, of of, of labour is is impacted by by yeah, the vote that happened a few years ago. Um, I do I do want to just touch on one more thing before before I thank you for your time today. Um, something that that you mentioned a little bit earlier, Phil, and is something that I've heard um, reported in the uh, in the news, in the press, I've heard it on the radio a couple of days ago as well. Is I think coming out of the pandemic, people recognize the value of travel and how much they they really value their kind of going on holiday whether it's once a year whether it's twice a year and even with the cost of living crisis i think people are prepared to sacrifice virtually everywhere else in their life mm-hmm. other than going on holiday at the moment which i imagine is encouraging for both of you that and that yeah. people really value what you do and personally I, I feel exactly the same i do not want to give up my summer holiday at all you know, I, I would rather, you know, trade down brands in the supermarket, not go out to restaurants, you know, not have nights out than miss out on my holiday because I value it so much after what we all went through kind of during lockdown and things like that. Um, but one of the things that I kind of think of as almost being a bit of an existential kind of problem for the airline industry is around um, kind of the environmental impact of airlines it's something that I notice amongst young people that we're working with at the moment that we're training. They are all, you know, seem to be almost petrified that the world is going to burn in the next two or three years. And we need to do the things that we that we can in order to reduce our, our impact environmentally, reduce our carbon footprints. Mm-hmm. And we know that the airline industry is one that isn't hasn't got a reputation of being green. Um, is there anything that is currently happening with the airline industry or anything that you are doing within your industries that's kind of almost going to help to reduce that impact and you know hopefully make it so that travel isn't going to have a negative environmental impact so i think stefan if i start with you is there anything that's happening within titan or with the wider industry no there absolutely is on both fronts um yeah, the aviation industry has definitely got itself a bad rep clearly it, it burns fossil fuels but and i'm 
and I um, and it's good that I suppose the generational shift seems to be happening to do something about about climate change and the environment and and um, so you know, I, I do agree that that's necessary and it's I sit on the job very much a pro supporter of environmental issues whilst we're you know essentially heading up an airline it does seem a bit of uh, an oxymoron but we can therefore you know, do our piece to try and do to do something with that and unfortunately aviation does have a bad rep and as a global emissions it is only a few percent but equally we all have our part to play in it so we at titan we are part of a um, strategy group called sustainable aviation which is a uk aviation approach to deal with climate change and it's no it's not just the emissions but it's also quieter aircraft smarter ways to work in the future and things like that um, which then obviously has its commitment towards uh, the net zero approach and UK aviation's net zero for 2050. Um, and then so, okay, what does that actually mean? What 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 effects are we doing? And a part of that comes to, you know, we've sold our three oldest aircraft disposed of this year and they've, they're, they've been replaced or you know, not exactly like for like yet, but the overall plan is to replace them with the most efficient quietus in class. And then, and so on a like for like basis, that's a 30% reduction in, in emissions on, on, you know, for every flight that occurs, it's a 30% reduction. So that, that's a fairly significant single step change. Um, with the same, we're doing the same within our freighter aircraft as well, which typically are the older end of life, cheaper fixed cost units, but we, uh, became the second operator globally to take a new aircraft type, the A321 freighter, uh, which Phil, you may have seen its presence at Safran for a while. Um, we were the first in the Northern Hemisphere, and, and for a short while, we had the largest fleet in the world of two, a uh, little old Titan, the biggest fleet in the world of a type. Um, but essentially, again, it's replacing our fleet of older freighter aircraft with the latest technology. No, no, they're not still new aeroplanes, but they are the most fuel efficient of its kind and that's a 25 percent reduction uh on a like for like basis per available kilogram of payload alongside that we're now working with uh, sustainable aviation fuel so i think in 2021 i think it was we we worked with a, a fuel to provide our first flight that ran on a blend of sustainable aviation fuel it's about 30 35 percent blend so this is non uh, fossil fuel based mm. the challenge with 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 saf is um, supplies is currently the limited factor. It's a relatively new product. Obviously, globally, a lot of aviation fuel gets burnt, so the supply chain isn't 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 there for that yet. But you know, we are working with our customers, offering that where we can as an op- option. Um, and if it's not available as a physical product, there's kind of an insetting scheme, which is essentially where you can pay for the SAF if you can't physically get it to you. Someone else uses it, but you've paid for it. Um, and we offer that as part of a product for those that want to. Essentially, you know, it comes at a premium. It's roughly four times the price of jet fuel currently. Um, and when the fuel price is a, is a big cost line, to multiply that by four is you know, some of the challenges to come with it. But it is in its infancy. It will play a part of an overall solution. There's no silver bullet to any of this. Um, and outside of just the emission side, it's things like upgrading all our aircraft to the latest noise modification standards, which means those of you that live near airports hopefully are slightly less affected, impacted by the, by the noise of the aircraft. Um, so yes, there's a number of pieces we're working on with those, and they, yeah, they all take time. It's you know the assets are expensive, and it's how you work on the technology over time. We are a small player in the overall industry, so we're not you know we're not out there spending billions on innovation, but we are trying to do what we can. And part of that's then our offering again comes back to where we sit in the marketplace, trying to be that premium offering, allows us to charge that premium, which allows us to make these investments in the younger aircraft that are more expensive, but that's kind of allows that to happen. 
um, and that's you know that is very much our continued continued path of where we sit and then we you know we will charge a premium to our customers but this is what we're doing about it and we're increasingly finding our customers now are more conscious of their the i suppose where they sit in the engine and being more selective with again if it's the 17th of july and your aircraft's broken they're not being selective at all they've got the checkbook out and they want recovering but when it's more strategic pieces it's looking at what they can do. partly it tends to be then cheaper for them as well but it's also then the environmental piece uh, and bizarrely we're also finding that becoming a, a challenge through raising debt we talked about interest rates rising those discussions that are becoming more challenging you know, the aviation industry well publicized for being a slightly high risk so most banks not particularly interested in the first instance when i find the additional hurdles to go through is okay we yeah. like your credit risk but you're not particularly green um mm-hmm. i'm not sure i want to lend to you this okay i'm trying to buy the latest tech aircraft to make <laughs> us greener but we, we're not we're not uh yeah. we're not seen um you know it's not fitting then through the policies that have been created which is a is a frustration but i understand the drive to it but it's how we're then approaching it yeah. Um, yeah. is the challenge. Yeah, it's, that is really interesting. And, and as you mentioned, with the those kind of replacement cycles of aircraft being very, very long, it, it's mm-hmm. going to take time for that to wash through. And, I think, and, and as you also mentioned, where you know, you, you're one of part of a chain with your aircraft where yeah, you may have got rid of three of the older, more polluting aircraft, but that almost certainly means there's another airline somewhere else in the world that's flying those planes with the same kind of emissions, but they've maybe replaced an aircraft that was 15 years older, that was even worse, but that's yes. just taking time to yes. get away from the system. It's not a, a quick thing to happen in that industry, yeah. in your industry. No, it, no it absolutely is. And, and when you look at, again, back to the global part of the industry, when it's globally growing, um, that's, you know, that's the bigger problem with, you know, you can make all the, uh, you know, we do the piece of technology advancements to reduce the like for like, but if the overall volume is growing, it's still increasing, isn't it, at the end of the day? Um, um, so it's it's a challenge, but it, equally, it's a challenge that faces everybody, every industry, and everybody has to therefore do their individual piece. So aviation particularly gets a bad rep, but when you look at the total emissions, it's not the biggest player by far. But it doesn't mean we don't have a responsibility to 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 reduce that down. Um, general population growth of the globe is is the big challenge, if you ask me. But um, it's but none of these none of these have individual silver bullet fixes because if they did, people would have done them by now. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a collective effort of which we are hopefully doing our piece. And Phil, if I can just ask you the same same question: What from an airport perspective? Mm-hmm. Now, you are, you have environmental challenges as well and what are you doing to address those yeah so i mean for us in the airport side of it actually it yeah we're quite reliant upon airlines effectively uh, when you think about our input into the emissions uh, us as an actual airport it's not that big it's what flies in and out of our airport that's the key so if the airline industries is taking hold of that and uh, the, the various airlines start to, to change their aircraft to quieter, you know, more fuel efficient, or they're starting to move from jet fuel to different types of fuel. We we will trade off the back of that. Our emissions as an airport effectively will drop. So all we can take control of is the control of elements. So in our terminal, we'll ensure, you know, we've got our own solar farm. We've got solar everywhere. You know, we're, we'll be changing parts of our terminal that are more um, efficient, you know, toilets, water supply, make sure our, you know, we have our own water supply, make sure we don't have leaks, we're not wasting water, uh, make sure our clean 
you know, we, we clean stuff going into waterways, etc., de-icing, uh, make sure we're efficient in terms of not wasting power, uh, make sure we're taking our power from someone who has renewable source, so a, a, what's it, like a responsible um, power supplier. You know, I'm not saying we're limited and we can't do things. We certainly are. But, straight, but, but the vast majority of our impact or what's foreseen as our impact is the industry itself. So we need EasyJet to change airplanes to, you know, quieter, better planes. You know, we've worked and had people in here about can we be a good place that has a, a hydrogen store? Can we be useful in as much as give people the infrastructure and the space? But again, it, it's, it's requiring other industries to, to spend the big bucks to make the change. It's sort of what Stefan is saying. We're all a part of this, but it's going to take time. It's going to take time. It's going to take money, right, to, to do it. So, um, yeah, we're um, we're a little bit of a follower. I don't know quite what the right term would be, but there's the, we're doing all we can do that's in our power. Like the hotel, for example. You know, we're, when we refer parts of that hotel, there's various elements in a room within the bathroom, within the infrastructure of that hotel, that now you can start to change to greener products. So that's the investment that we'll make in in that respect. And it's sort of accepting even small changes are all just going to play its part in the wider sort of ecosystem of being greener. So, yeah. I think that's, that, that, that's the only thing most businesses can do is, mm. is to do what they can do. And if, if enough businesses do that, that's when we get massive change. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I'm old enough to remember the the, the um, CFC issue with the, um, with the aerosol cans in the in the 80s, where the the chemicals were were depleting the ozone layer, and people thought that it was irrecoverable and you wouldn't be able to fix it. And it was over a period of time with people gradually moving away from them a little bit at a time that we managed to wean ourselves off those particular um, particular chemicals and. In that time, since that's bit, since that's happened, we've seen the ozone layer has begun to recover. So it, it's something that it, yeah. it can happen, but it doesn't. You don't just snap your fingers and suddenly everything is green and everything is zero emission and we've hit net zero. Um, as you said, Stefan, if the airline industry is looking at another what twenty five years before it hits net zero, that's lots and lots of little changes all the way to get there. But that's where we need to be aiming for. And, you know, when you start thinking about those, those time frames for rolling over assets over long periods of time, it, it's going to take time for that to wash through the entire system. But, you know, you would hope it will, you would hope we'll make it at some point. And uh, I, I, as you said, Stefan, I think it's great that, you know, the young people that I'm speaking to have this as, you know, one of their top priorities. And it's, you know, probably people of our generation that maybe didn't have it quite so high up our priority list when we qualified that, that you know, help me know to make these changes quicker absolutely excellent well it's it's reached that time where i know i need to let you go back to go back to your computers and and kind of finish up the day's work for today um i just want to thank you both for appearing so thank you so much stefan for for sharing your experiences here it's been absolute pleasure to catch up with you and phil uh, i yeah from my favourite airports in the UK that I've been to. Um, it's been really it. good to hear um, kind of everything that happens on the ground. Um, I know our listeners will get a lot of value from this because it is the kind of discussion that you just don't hear anywhere else. You don't get to kind of get under the skin of an industry. You know, a lot of the time we just get on a plane and think I paid my ticket without thinking about what it takes to actually get that plane in the air, for, both from an aircraft perspective, but also from the perspective of what happens in the airport. So thank you so much for your time. Um, you'll always be welcome if you want to come back. 
Um, if we've got any other yeah. themes that we want to go through. Um, but thank you for sharing your time. Um, and thank you to everyone that's listening today. Um, and we will see any listeners again on, on the next episode of the Best Nutrition Podcast. Um, stay safe and um, I hope you enjoy your studying. Thank you.